All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to DPH Clinical. I'm here with the guys from Colorado Surgical Institute, Dr. Dan Brisky and Dr. Tahir Dune. What's happening, guys? Paul, I missed you, man. It's great to be back on. It's been a long time. We usually record like every four weeks. It's been five weeks, so it feels like I haven't seen you in a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Dude, sorry. Someone called me like literally right when you were talking, and I haven't done Do Not Disturb, and it still went through. People call it to hair all Dude, the time. It's so annoying. I'm guessing it's all the time, and it's not just when I think somebody just called him again. All right, we're just going to carry on. Like no, 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 no. Like okay, okay. We're he's going to come we're in. Good. Oh, he's back. He's back. Okay, good. All right, good. Today we're talking about removing implants. We want to get into like removing implants, and I know some people listening might be like, "I'm not removing implants," but they're going to talk about like why, when, when should you, when should you graft, when should you put in a new one. All that jazzy stuff. Who wants to start off and just roll with it? Just from the very beginning, do not worry if you have to remove an implant. You have to be able to confidently tell the patient, hey, this happens sometimes. It's okay. We got you covered. Don't worry about it. You got to say like, oh, yeah, fillings sometimes fail. Root canals sometimes fail. Bone grafts sometimes fail. Implants sometimes fail. It is not the end of the world. It's not your fault that it failed. Sometimes it just happens. The body rejects it. Something happened where you could have perfect clinical form and still have the implant fail. You got to just tell the patient, like, don't worry about it. I got you covered. Do you got an extra half an hour to hang out today or you want us to bring you back in? And just say it, matter of fact. So I think... Yeah, what do you tell your patients, Brisky? Well, I try to leave it up to them for the most part, right? Because I tell them, you know, 3% of the patients won't have good enough bone and those 3% of the time, the implant fails. And I just kind of shrug my shoulders. Like, hey, it happens. <laughs> there you go. Really? But they want you to make it a big deal, but you can't make things a big deal because patients will make it an even bigger deal, right? So you just let them know at the end of the day that you're going to take fantastic care of them and then you just get things redone. So just 3%? 3%? Only if you're Dr. Dune and myself, right? Uh, and you can say something like <laughs> the national statistics are 7%, but in this practice, we're only seeing it at 3%. <laughs> you can always oh, spin it, right? Yeah, I say ten percent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then you just tell the patient, like, "Hey, sometimes this happens, and it just so happens it's you." And every patient's like, "Oh man, knowing my luck, that's just how it is." Because everyone thinks that they're the most unlucky they person that. in the whole mm-hmm. world. Everybody thinks they're the most unlucky person in the world. That's so yeah. true. It's also the same thing, like with night guards. I say, "Hey, I mean, you've been feeling tired." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been feeling Are you really- ever thirsty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. Okay, go ahead, Brisky. What are you going to say? Well, the biggest thing for long-term success, right, is like for complications, we all don't want to take teeth out. So one of the big principles I've seen recently that just dentists don't realize is how to really just prevent periodontitis. And we could talk all day on that, but that's not what we're really here to talk about today. But there's a lot of contributing factors that happen towards periimplantitis and effective maintenance is the biggest key for not losing implants. When we notice an implant, we should start probing implants and really looking around for them for pockets and seeing if there's bleeding. What I always look for, and as I tell the hygienist, is probe and you can use a perioprobe that's plastic if you'd like to. I know the literature says it's like 0.25 newtons of force that you're going to be placing on the probe. But what the hell does that mean? It just means like, don't press very hard inside. You're going to probe normally, just like you do around regular teeth. There's nothing special that you're going to be doing around implants. Maybe just ever so slightly more gently. But I like to use a plastic probe, a little bit more friendly and humane way to probe patients in general. 
But what you're going to be looking for is a five millimeter pocket with bleeding. So if you see five millimeter pocket with bleeding, that should be something in your head says, man, I need to figure out what's going on. Is it like the occlusal load? Is it excess cement? Is it the patient not using their water pick? Is it bad form? Does the restoration not actually fit correctly? If I take a CT or if I actually take a bite wing, does it have the, the proper crown shape form? Uh, right? Is the implant in, this, in the location it needs to be to have a long lasting uh, restoration? Like what's going on? It's obviously smart to have non-surgical intervention in the beginning. So if you don't have resolution of bleeding, but after the patient does proper home therapy and you do the correct job of removing biofilm in the office with a microblaster or a diode laser or just routine antiseptic rinses, right, with Paradex or Microsyn, Closis, those sorts of things, then at that point in time, it's time for surgical intervention. And all the time now, I see docs send me x-rays and they say, hey, look at this, what would you do? But we all just kind of sit back for some reason when it comes to implants and we watch them get worse. And I never understood that. And I used to do this too, because I just didn't know what to do in the beginning. I would wait until something has more than 50% bone loss. So then I would take the implant out. <laughs> but if we can save them and all these perio, there's actually a study in the periodontal literature that says they pulled like over 200 periodontists and they showed in them all an x-ray of an implant and whether or not they take out the implant or not and only had like 20% bone loss. And they said like over 90% of the periodontists would take it out. So it's not just GPs as well. It's multiple specialists that for some reason we would rather remove an implant than we would save it. I really just caution everyone to start probing implants and looking for five millimeter pockets of bleeding and having some non-surgical intervention before things get to the point where you have to take it out. I feel like people watch it because they want it just to go away on its own. <laughs> yep, it's true. Like maybe the patient will move away or pass away or I don't know. Let's just watch it and just we'll worry about this in six or so months. And hopefully we won't have I to. think a lot of it is just like, well, who's paying for this? It's like they already dropped four grand on a tooth and now it's going to be harder to do. We got to back this sucker out. Do I charge him for the removal do I charge them for a new abutment and crown? The lab bills are expensive. It's like, where's the patient fall within the responsibility? And that's the hardest question. One thing to touch base on is, Dr. Brisky, I want everyone to think about this in two phases. There's surgical healing, and then there's prosthetic healing. All right, so the surgical phase and prosthetic phase. What Dr. Brisky is talking about is the prosthetic phase of potential failure and when to intervene after the tooth or the implant is quote-unquote integrated and it's restored and when we're looking at it. Surgically speaking, we're going to approach it a little differently. But while we're on the prosthetic phase of it, I think you should think about it from the perspective of, did you place the implant in your practice? If the answer is no, the patient pays full fee. Maybe you give them like friends and family discount. You do like a 10% discount because you're a great person. Maybe you don't charge them for the removal if it's going to be easy. Maybe you help them out somewhere, right? You throw in the oral sedation for free. But if it was placed in your practice, the patient has done everything you asked them to do. They made every single hygiene appointment. They've got the occlusal guard. They got the perio under control. They paid for the laser, all that stuff with the hygienist. Maybe you do them a solid and you say, hey, you tell your friends and family about us. I got you covered or I'll charge you 50% or do something where if they've paid you the 4000 already and later down the road, 
they've done everything and they're just losing ground, I would consider maybe helping them out. That's at least my philosophy. Yeah, that's what I've done in my practice. Anytime I've had to take one out or it failed, never charge twice. Because I think when people are paying $4,000 is quite a bit of money for most people. And I think they expect a result. Yeah. And if they've done everything you asked them to do, then I think that's fair. They disappear for two years and come back in and there's bone loss. Like, hey, that's on you. This is what maintenance is for. And I'll say something like, hey, you just drove your car 200,000 miles and you never got the oil changed. This is what happens. You have to see us four times a year for maintenance. And I actually will tell anyone with two implants or more in their mouth, you have to see the hygienist four times a year. I don't care if two of those cleanings are not covered by insurance. You're paying out of pocket for it because that's what kind of quote unquote warranties it or whatever word you want to use in this practice. That's what shows me that you've done your fair share to maintain this. I got a question here and this might be a dumb question, but I hope I'm not the only one thinking it. Two, three implant overdenture, two, three implants on the lower, a dentalist on the top. You still want to see every four months for me? I do. I want to clean them. I want to check everything on them but I do a significantly reduced rate and they're only in the hygienist slot for half an hour and they get glycine powder and everything around there. We kind of check it. We educate the patient on a few things and it's a heavily reduced rate. I mean, it's like 60 bucks per cleaning or something like whatever half of a profi charges, but it's kind of like what we do in the practice to maintain them because they disappear or against overdenture cases. There's a lot of mobile tissue. There's not always keratinized tissue on the buckle of these implants. They're really prone to failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good answer. So removing an implant, we're talking about, well, you mentioned Brisky talking about the prosthetic phase. Do you want to touch on the surgical phase when you would say, okay, maybe it's time just to remove this and cut our losses? So in singles or full arch, first we'll just talk about single implants or ones or twos, right? If you're looking in the mouth and there's more than 50% bone loss around the implant, that's when I would remove it at that specific time. Now, when it comes to full arch, there's also lots of cases out there where you might have some periimplantitis that happens around other implants, or you have to redo the arch, or you have like a broken prosthetic part and you have to remove an implant. And there's many different reasons to remove implants. So we'll definitely go into both of them. Even in the past couple months, I've been to two friends' offices, and one of them, I redid the arch with them. And we actually removed three implants. He was shocked by how easy it was. I was like, yeah, like this is such an easy thing. You can do it. It's just more mind over matter. And we all get so nervous because of legally speaking, we don't, when a patient has a big arch failure, we're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I don't want this patient to sue me. And also too, I'm just really sad that the patient doesn't have teeth right now. So sometimes we'll, Dr. D and myself, we'll go help our friends out in the areas because that's what we need to do as a profession is be there for all of our like dentists. We don't want to be the dentist who are kind of cranky or walking around and don't share information or don't adopt abundance mindset. That's not who we are or who we ever want to be. We want to get everyone on the same page as us as quickly as possible. When we're removing implants, there's multiple different ways to do it. My favorite way is actually just using a fixture removal tool. A fixture removal tool is basically, if you can picture it, it will go into the torque wrench, but it will have almost like the tip of a screwdriver, but it has a bunch of different threads and it's actually reverse threaded. So the fixture removal tool is meant to go into the implant, not clockwise, but it engages it counterclockwise. So that way, when it rotates counterclockwise, when it actually grips on the internal portion of the implant, it continues to rotate the implant counterclockwise, which is out rather than in if you go clockwise. 
So like righty tighty, lefty loosey, <laughs> it just makes things go left and continue to unscrew. But with implants in general, I like to remove bone around the implant because sometimes what will happen is the implant may be so secure or maybe you use the 13 or 16 millimeter implant, right? And if you lose 50%, you still have eight millimeters. So sometimes what we'll do is with bigger implants or with many threads that are still engaged around it is I'll remove bone in about three millimeter increments. So I like to use a trephine with a ton, a ton of water and I'll remove just three millimeters and then I'll use the fixture removal tool. And I've always found when it gets to about five to six millimeters of bone around an implant, that that implant will just unscrew at that time. Ever since we started using Relevance Online Marketing, I could see a drastic improvement in our SEO. I mean, we are ranking so much higher when searching for dentists in our hometown. We are seeing more new patients and certainly someone you should give a, give a look at if you're considering new marketing companies. Just absolutely awesome. I would recommend Relevance to any practice owner who wants to see what proper marketing can do for their office. I want to thank Dr. Paul Etchinson for introducing me to Relevance Marketing. They've done a great job, very thorough. I'm happy with the results. Thank you guys for all of your help. We never truly realized how powerful this could be. It's really changed our business for the best. I think they're definitely worth every penny. Easy to communicate with, easily accessible, does what I ask, and even shows me some reports when things are going a little bit off track and what they're doing about it. You know, it's just a level of service I just haven't really received from other marketing agencies. Since we've been using Relevance, we've seen a tremendous growth in our business. I would recommend their services to just about anybody. Search engine optimization uh, and getting your ranking on Google to be the highest it can possibly be. The efforts uh, by Relevance and their team and the efforts and the things that they've done with the, uh, the SEO as well as the social media. Highly recommend it. So what are you waiting for? This is Dr. Paul Etchison telling you to get a free consultation with Relevance. As a listener of the podcast, you get the first month free and there is zero obligation to continue if you aren't blown away. Make this the year you grow your practice to the next level. Go to RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com to set up a free consultation. That's RelevanceOnlineMarketing.com. I'm very similar to Dr. Brisky in this respect. However, I'll always order the implant driver that hooks into the ratchet for that brand of implant and try that to back out the implant first, if I can, because that fits as intimately as possible into that brand of implant. And I'd say 90% of the time I can back out the implant just with a ratchet and the driver that's specific for the implant. Now, if that doesn't work or I'm feeling like it's just not working, then I switch to the implant removal tool that Dr. Brisky was talking about and with the reverse threads and all of that. Same kind of approach with the trephine and all of the above. And then sometimes if you start trephining the burr or the, the implant or the bone and you start to reverse it out and you start to flower your implant open, well, now that essentially means that the top of the implant starts to break open because there's so much anti-rotational force into it, but the apex of the implant is still integrated that the metal opens up and it kind of flowers open. Well, now you can't actually back out that implant. So then what I'll do, and this is super rare for everyone listening, this is like 1% of the time. And it always happens on the most cranky patients. So just kind of be prepared for it. But 
I'll take a burr, like a 557 or some kind of burr, and I'll cut like a flathead notch into the implant. And then Dr. Brisky found this thing on Amazon. It's just basically a screwdriver kit. It has like a little torque ratchet on it, but it's just made, I think it's like $16. And I'll put that in there and I'll start to back out the implant. If it flowers more, I'll cut it further down and keep backing the sucker out until it comes out all the way. Rarely do I have to trephine all the way to the bottom because at that point you're not getting any irrigant to the bottom. You're introducing a whole lot of heat to it and there could be necrosis of the bone and other things occurring. So I like to section the implant as much as possible and break that sucker loose with some kind of flathead type of approach. Mm-hmm. I like to just say that's only 49% bone loss and we're going to watch <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or we can do that <laughs> at this at this point after that interaction there i'm uh yeah no thing <laughs> and just remember everyone who's listening they back right out 90 percent of the time you put some anti-rotational force the sucker backs out the bone inside the osteotomy or what used to be a osteotomy is like threads and it's perfect and you just size up your implant a little bit and drop another implant in and you're moving on with your day in 20 minutes. It's really easy. You just back it out, drop another one in. <laughs> I feel like forward. we started this episode. We started out like, it's easy. Anyone can do it. And then Tahir just threw in that flowering <laughs> the implant thing. And it just, everyone just went, oh, shit. Oh, man. Like, what if that happens? I don't know what to I'm do. I'm just going to oh, give man. Brisky's no, cell get phone out to everyone listening so you can just text them. <laughs> yeah. 4 a.m. everyone. Now I got to go on Amazon and buy a wrench. <laughs> also, too, for fixture removal tools, they have different sizes. They have a narrow body, regular body, and wide body. So each one will fit a different type of implant. I like to have all three sizes. And the reason is if you're backing out an implant and it flowers, if you use the next one, which is the smaller one, it'll actually grip the implant in the more apical portion rather than the coronal portion where it just flowered. And you're more likely to engage it again and back it out in that circumstance. We've had, oh my gosh, I've seen literally every scenario now these days. And I've seen ones where we broke a driver off inside the implant. Then we had to drill the driver tip off. Then I would use a fixture removal tool to get the implant out. Then I flowered it. And then I used the smaller one. And then I was able to finally get it and I engaged it and rotated just right back out just really nicely. And I've had ones where that wouldn't work, where now that I would engage even deeper and it would flower again or the implant would crack. And then you have no choice at this point in time but to use an elevator or to use a trephine to go a little bit deeper until the implant comes out altogether. But this is a very small amount of the time that these things actually do happen like that. For the most part, it's if you've ever hung a TV before, you screw a screw into the wall and it gets pretty stable and you torque it in. But it's the same thing when it comes back out. You just unscrew it. <laughs> so it's literally like hanging in a TV. And I think that's why I love dentistry so much is because my dad and I used to, we built like our up north cabin together, like across the street in our garage. We built an entire loft and everything with my dad. And for some reason, dentistry has just made really good sense to me because I feel like it's a very practical type of profession. You ever really sunk an implant in there good and then you took the PA and you said, yeah, and then you took the cone beam and you're like, I totally missed the stud. <laughs> no. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> no. Nope. Right. We're confident backing it out. We're just going to, we're just going to yeah. do it. Have no fear backing it out. Yeah. What do we do at that site? That big 
massive hole. So I personally, as long as there's not a lot of infection present and there's plenty of buccal and palatal or buccal and lingual bone, I'll take a slightly larger size implant and just try to place that. And then if it torques out too early, which sometimes it will, then I back it out. I'll take one drill in. I'll kind of lightly brush stroke the walls of the osteotomy or where the implant was removed. And then I'll place another implant. If there's soft tissue or granulation tissue that have been embedded into the threads and into the bone, you got to clean that out. So curette thoroughly, or you can take a burr, like one of your um, osteotomy burrs, and you can just like brush stroke the walls like you're doing an endo, right? Biomechanical instrumentation. And you're just going to brush stroke all that tissue off of the bone and get it really nice and clean, make sure it's bleeding properly. And then you can size up your implant and drop an implant, a couple millimeters subcrestal, if it works. Now, if it's a site where you're like, hey, we've lost a lot of bone, let's not ask for too many miracles, then clean it out, bone graft it, membrane, PRF, if you use that, suture, come back, live to fight another day. The really cool thing about implants is you drill a hole, it doesn't work, you close it up, the bone regrows. If you do a root canal and you perforate through the furcation, well, that tooth is toast. And so I've always looked at it through the vantage point of like, hey, we get so many redos in implant dentistry as long as you're willing to pull the ripcord at the right time and not push the body too far and ask for too many miracles. You just drill your hole. I don't like it. Bone graft material. Close that sucker up. Come back. Place it again in the future. So it's very forgiving type of profession as long as we can change the mindset shift to think about it as something that's commonplace versus something that's like existential and that we can't control all the factors on. Do you ever have a site where you're like, I can't go any bigger. This is the biggest implant I have. Is there certain like limits to guys? I've seen like seven millimeter wide implants. Like, I don't know. I'm just curious how wide you go. Yeah. I mean, for me, I typically don't place anything wider than a six. I'd say 99% of the implants I place are five millimeters in diameter or less because also consider If you're going to sevens and all that, I mean, you're going to mediates and you're using really big implants. So when I start to get to a six, I start to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we just graft this sucker and come back and live to fight another day type of conversation. Mm -hmm. Anything to add to that, Brisky? Yes. So when you're really just choosing implant sizes in general, what I am thinking in my head is if this implant that I'm placing fails, what do I do next? So if you place a six millimeter implant, well, what happens when it fails, you, you traditionally can't really grab a bigger implant, right? Unless you actually have a seven that that company that you're using makes. So I'll traditionally try to undersize, right? And like, if I have a ridge that I could place a six, I'm not going to place a six, I'm going to place a five. Because if you ever have a graft, or if the bone is soft, and the bone the implant spins, because the bone is soft, I'm going to want to grab a bigger implant instead of grabbing the biggest implant in the beginning. Because back in even the early 2000s, the mindset was different. You place the biggest implant you can and the longest implant you can in the ridge. That's not true anymore. We think about implants in terms of bone-to-implant contact, like BIC. And that just means how much bone around an implant is going to be good enough for it to integrate. Traditionally speaking, those sizes are 3.5 by 11, has the same BIC as a four by 10 has the same BIC as a five by eight. So if you go with any of those implant sizes, you're going to make a good decision. But just remember, if something fails, you want to not have to graft it, which you can, right? You can definitely graft it and come back later. I always try to leave one size for me to go a little bit bigger later 
so the patient doesn't have to go without teeth for another three months. All right. Awesome. Do talk about real quick. What do you guys got coming up at CSI? We have our May course coming up pretty soon, next month or so. We got a couple of spots left in the May course. I think we're sold out in June. And then we have one or two courses at the end of the year. So from that perspective, if you're interested in doing single implants or wisdom teeth or full arch, or you can even sign up a la carte for block grafting and laterals, go check out the website or reach out to Dr. Brisky and myself. And we can kind of tell you more about what exactly we have in the May course, because it's kind of a unique course in terms of how we're structuring it. Just reach out to us and we'll get you scheduled up. Yeah, I think the moral of the story is to uh, reach out before it books out really far. You guys are booking out far, which is great. So that means the people that are taking the course are really happy. And don't wait to get scheduled. Put it on your calendar. Commit to making taking the course and learning how to do this stuff. All right. Thanks so much, guys. We will talk to you next time. Thanks, man. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.